I just this week got finished uh, reading Endurance. Uh, it's a, a, a book written about Ernest Shackleton and his adventure, uh, maybe, uh, in the Antarctic. Uh, it's a fascinating book. Uh, I've told a few people about it, and it's fascinating to read this adventure, and, uh, and yet I have zero desire to do anything similar to what they do in the book. I mean, it is crazy. And as I got to the book, I, I knew a few things, because Ernest Shackleton is a fairly famous historic uh, character, and uh, so I knew that he had written his own book. So I knew that he had survived, and I actually knew that he was this great leader and that uh, many, uh, if not all, of the folks had survived. I had these general ideas, right? But that, that was kind of it. Um, so there was a, some sense of inevitability as I was reading the book that at least Shackleton and a bunch of the people would survive. But at, at any moment, nothing felt inevitable. So the story is they were going to hike across uh, the continent of Antarctica, and um, and even before they got there, their ship, the Endurance, got caught in the ice pack. And I mean, it is feet wide. Uh, the, the the wood is is feet thick on on any side, and the ice pack was so powerful that it crushed their ship, and they ended up having to go and live on the uh, the ice pack that then breaks up into flows. And they can travel across parts of it, but then some of it gets really wet. And then it has to get warm enough for it to break up and then to get in these little dinghies to then make it to an island hundreds of miles away in some of the roughest seas in the world. And, and they're, they're experiencing things like uh, the ice flow, the, one of the, the big piece that they're living on at one point. As they're sleeping, it cracks in the middle and one of the guys it, it falls out of his tent into the water through the crack. And he's pulled out. Uh, just moments before it closes and crushes back up, right? And, and that's just like one example. I mean, we, we could spend all morning talking about any 24-hour period that it, it almost seems inevitable that nobody is going to make it. But again, because I, I know some of the story, uh, it, it seems much more uh, inevitable. And, and I think there's a question for us as we approach really any part of Scripture uh, there is some sense of inevitability because we know the rest of the story. This story of David here in Hebron right after Saul's death, uh, we, we know what's going to happen with David. We know that he is going to end up king of all of Israel. But it's helpful for us as, as we should regularly ask the question of Scripture, what difference does it make to me right now today? And, and that's some of what we do every Sunday as we look at the Word. And, and uh, I pray that's what you do uh, during the week as you read the Word of God. But in order for us to understand that, it's helpful for us to, to both understand the original author and his original audience and how they would have understood it, as well as understanding some of the experiences of the characters being described in the book. It's helpful for us to try to, to put ourselves in David's shoes and those that surround him and think about what would it have been like for them. It does not seem inevitable that David is going to be king, even with the promise that he has from Yahweh, that is the personal name for God, that even with the promise from Yahweh that he will be the king, David himself has acted in a way that uh, seems to, oh, I'm not so sure. And we, and we see the experience that he's having here. He's been years on the run from Saul. Saul has finally died. And it seems, now's the time. David's going to be king, right? 
And that's not exactly what we find. Things do not seem inevitable here. But because this is a part of Scripture and because we know the fuller story, we can know that God is working in these small beginnings with the opposition to accomplish his work. Three simple points. God is working through the small beginnings with opposition to accomplish his work. Small beginnings uh, with opposition to accomplish his work. Let me pray. Lord, we pray that you would meet us here as we look at your word, that you would fill us with your spirit, that we might understand what it means for us today and how it might give us challenge and how it might give us hope. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Small beginnings. Again, it feels like it's time. David should be the king, right? And and we read, oh, he's anointed king in verse 4 over the house of Judah. In Hebron, Hebron is this <clears throat> small town. It is there is this connection to Abraham, to the ancestors, uh, to the, the forefathers of the faith. Um, but it's still this this small town, kind of uh, backwater town. It's it's not it doesn't hold a lot of significance. And yet that's where David goes, and that's where he ends up ruling for seven and a half years. Um, so not only are these small beginnings, it's, it's in this small stage for a long time. And then he's anointed as king over Judah. And as a reminder, the, the nation of Israel is 12 tribes, and Judah is just one of them. It's David's tribe, so it seems like, oh, well, it's, it's, you know, it's David, David's people. It's his family. It's his tribe. Uh, and he's just the king of that one tribe. Even with the promise that he's going to be king over all of Israel, even the promises of what we see about David and the promises to his offspring to come and the position that he holds in the whole story of Scripture. uh, We're going to look at Revelation 22, the last book of the uh, last chapter of the whole Bible. and, And David is mentioned. He is a big deal, right? But here he's just in Hebron, just the king of one tribe of the 12. And it lasts a long time. But this is the story of God and his work throughout Scripture. We see that just the fact that he chose Israel, it was because you were the least of these, he says, he chose Israel. And then we look at the life of Jesus Christ, who came and he was born in Bethlehem, small town and raised in Nazareth, even smaller. He he was uh, the the son of Joseph and Mary, this carpenter, no, no, nobody of uh, prominence, no, 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 nothing notable about him. And then as he ends, in, his, ends up in ministry, he calls his 12 disciples, and uh, there's nobody really of note there. This is how God is continually working. He's, he's starting small. He begins with uh, folks and people and activities that seem like, wait, shouldn't the work of Yahweh, the creator of the world, be bigger than this? And maybe we think that in, in our own lives, maybe the work should be bigger in me or through me or in my circles. Maybe the work should be bigger at Fountain Square Presbyterian Church. Should it be uh, more known and more powerful? God is starting small oftentimes. I, I think about uh, the endurance, the book about Shackleton. And at the very beginning, it mentions all 28 men who are part of that uh, expedition. But a number of those folks, are, their name is never mentioned again because you can't really cover the lives of all 28 in the midst of this one book, right? And yet, each and every one of those uh, plays this amazing role in their survival. And it's playing a role in the reality that it's so many points when things seem lost, 
they have remarkably good morale and attitudes. You you think of all the things that happen. This one, as you're reading the book uh, and you're reading the things that they're experiencing, one of the most shocking things is that they continue to have a good attitude. They continue to have joy in the midst of months and months of pure darkness where they are uh, living in temperatures that we can't even imagine and they're wet the whole time. Like you don't even know how they, they live, right? And they have these amazingly good attitudes. And, and so much of that is founded upon uh, all these guys that I don't remember their names, right? This is a regular way that we live life. And, and there should be, as we read scripture and we see God working through these small beginnings, there should be an incredible encouragement to us as we live our ordinary mundane lives as, as we, we are uh, not known in the culture around us or, uh, you know, we're not powerful people or some powerful church that God is working here in each of us and in us as a community and us as a church that God is, is working powerfully. And, and, and maybe we think, uh, you know, I, I look back at the years of Fountain Square Press and uh, maybe I think, oh, my dreams would have been that we would have been bigger and that we would have been here or there. And, and yet I, I see the way that God has worked in my own heart in powerful ways over the last seven and a half years. And I look around and I see the ways in which God has worked in so many lives in really powerful, beautiful ways uh, over this time. God is working in ways that sometimes seem small, but are powerful. This is regularly the way that he does it. And then he does it in the midst of, uh, of opposition. He is, he is working his story and there is opposition. So, and so David, you know, again, it seems like, okay, it's, it's David's time now, right? Here we go. David's going to be king. The, the promises of Yahweh are going to be fulfilled and seven and a half years before we begin to move forward toward that promise. Seven and a half years of waiting. So not only is it small beginnings, it's, it takes a long time. And we're not patient people. But God calls us to be patient with his work. And in the midst of that is this opposition. So it seems like it's David's time. But Abner, verse 8, the commander of Saul's army, the one who has been a part of pursuing David, even against the promises of God, decides, you know what? is most advantageous for me, Saul's son, Ishbosheth, to be king. And then we see this power dynamic set up, and Abner's working for himself, and he goes over to the other side before, and, and later in, uh, in chapter 3, he joins in with David, and then he's killed. But all along the way, we see battle, we see fights, we see war happening between Israel and the followers of Ishbosheth and Abner, they're fighting with David, with the one who Yahweh has said will be king, who will reign and rule for him. There is opposition. There are alternate competing kingdoms. And sometimes it comes in these obvious ways of war and life loss and incredibly deep sin and, and brokenness. And, and we can see that even happening around the world as we've prayed for Pastor Wang Yi and early reign covenant church and the persecution that's occurring in Chengdu, China and other parts of the world, there is clear, outright opposition to the church in many places. And, and we pray for those folks. Wang Yi and his wife in prison now, a year and a half later, still in prison, no, no sign that they will get out. They're, they're leaders imprisoned here and there and harassed regularly, members regularly harassed uh, just for following Jesus Christ and proclaiming the good news of the gospel, outright opposition. 
competing kingdoms. And sometimes the competing kingdoms are obvious and, and uh, even in around us, uh, different claims to truth, that, that truth comes from other places or that God doesn't exist or that if he exists, he's, he's wrong or evil even, or uh, that the church itself is, is evil and, and perpetrates evil. Even as we have to recognize in the history of the church that there is sin and brokenness and things that we collectively need to repent of and turn from, uh, we, we would say that the church is still uh, the place where God is working. And yet there are those that would say otherwise. There's obvious competing uh, narratives about what is true and what is right and what is good. And oftentimes those competing kingdoms come from the outside. And in, in obvious and less obvious ways, but sometimes they come from within. They come from my desire to be in control myself. We, we see this with Abner. Abner really wants power himself. And he's able to associate that with some godly stuff, with Israel. And with Saul had been God's anointed, and, and Abner could you know, surely make a case and make himself feel comfortable about the power that he's seeking by putting Saul's son, Ishbosheth, in power and keeping some of that for himself, right? Or then he shifts easily to, to fall in line with David because it's giving him some control and some power. And we find that in our own lives that uh, even in the church, uh, oftentimes we think that the answer for the church is political power to, or comfort or, or being in places where somebody doesn't threaten us uh, because that's what we've experienced for so long. But that, that's not gospel message. Uh, that's a competing kingdom for us. And, and there are other ways in which competing kingdoms come in for us. It's other goals that we put in life. It's goals other than the king, Jesus. It's seeking out happiness or comfort or success or finances. Any one of those things can become a competing kingdom for us. And what we find is that even in the midst of that, even in the midst of my own heart that has these competing kingdoms regularly at play, that God is at work, that God is accomplishing his purposes, even as that opposition comes from outside and inside. It's right to expect opposition. It's right to know that things are going to be difficult, that we're going to have competing kingdoms. It's right to think about how those come from around us and the culture around us, to engage those conversations, difficult as they might be. To think about how we define what is true, to think about how we define what our identity is and where it comes from, whether it's from within or whether it's from our creator. Those are difficult conversations that we need to have. We also need to be aware of the opposition that comes from within our own hearts, and yet within all of it, be encouraged that God is at work. We continually look at the life of David, and we, we are constantly put in this position of going, oh, right, that, that seems great. Oh, what, what is going on there? And we find it even here, not only in the, the few verses that were read, as we see polygamy playing out in David's life, but then we see the way in which uh, he himself is, is selfish and uses other people over the rest of chapter 2 and 3 in these battles, in these wars, in which David is not perfect. And we know what is still to come, his murder and adultery, right? It is not, David is not this hero. God is the hero. 
God is the one who is working because we do know ultimately the role that David plays in spite of, despite his sin and the competing kingdoms within in his own heart and the competing kingdoms around him. God is in control and working so that, again, David is this central character in all of Scripture. Again, Revelation 22, last chapter of the Bible. The king, Jesus, the king of kings, says this. He says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches, about the end of things, about Jesus returning and making all things right. He's putting, he's wrapping up the story of history, right? And he's talking about the glorification that is to come, the end of redemption, because all things will be redeemed and made right. And he says, I am the root and descendant of David the bright morning star. David is this central character. We've known from the Old Testament that the Savior is going to come, the Savior of God's people, the Savior of the world is going to come from the line of David. And so we read Isaiah 9, uh, almost every Christmas, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The zeal of Yahweh will do this. God is at work and he's using David, the mess that David is, the mess that this moment is, the war and the opposition that is going on here, the fact that things are small. God is at work in powerful ways. And so we look to that Savior who came from the line of David. We look to Jesus Christ who When Yahweh embraced David and then promised to embrace his people, in spite of all of their mess, he gives us that same promise. That Jesus Christ came into this world, the son of David, to embrace his people, to embrace you and me, despite our sin and our brokenness. And so we could have this amazing hope that that means that We're not good enough and we'll never be good enough. And yet Jesus loves us and embraces us and cares for us and values us. And it's not because of what we do. So there can be no pride thinking I'm good enough for him to love me and embrace me. That we don't have to compare to David and look at the good acts of David and the ways in which he was brave. And there were those moments for sure and think, oh, I've got to live up to that in order for God to love me. To put us in the place of pride, thinking that we've earned it or deserved it. But we also don't have to be ashamed or covered up in our shame because we're not good enough. So that we see the competing kingdoms in David's life and we think, oh, that's me too. But we don't have to be covered in shame because God works and he saves and he embraces David and he embraces you and me. Jesus, the son of David embraces you and me and all of our mess God is working he's working out of these small ways in the midst of opposition in order that he might love us care for us draw us in incredible hope that he he offers us may we rest in that May we not be focused on the outward circumstances that aren't the way that we would have them be. We look at this story and we think, that's not how I would have done it at that time. Feels like it's David's time, right? Oh, this is a long period to wait. And we wait. We wait for the return of Jesus. We wait for 
so many of his promises. There is the sense in which the Savior has already come and he's not yet fulfilled what he's going to do, what, what he said he'll do in this Revelation 22 uh, chapter where he's telling us about the end of things and all things made right. We wait for that. We do so with patience, knowing that he is at work. And he invites us into that story. He embraces us and loves us and cares for us because of the work of Jesus Christ. Let's rest in that.